In recent years, questions of gender equality and inequality have been raised in the creative arts, including within theatre, visual arts, music, dance, and recently in film, with the important Me Too conversations. Welcome to this special season of Delving Into Dance. This three-part season explores international perspectives about gender equality in dance. This season complements a significant Delving Into Dance report that examines gender inequality within Australian dance. This report, Turning Point, presents some confronting data and the roles the whole industry can play in rectifying this situation. You can find the report on delvingintodance.com and join the conversation, leave a comment and share it with your friends. The second episode of this season is with choreographer Kathy Marston. Kathy has a wealth of experience and this episode has some wonderful advice for emerging choreographers. I spoke to Kathy on the phone and started by asking, where did dance start and when? So dance began for me with tap. Um, I loved uh, movie musicals and Fred and Ginger, Sid Therese and those sorts of people. Um, and I started with that, but fairly soon um, the, the dance teacher said I should try ballet too. Um, but for a long time it was really with an intention to go into musical theatre. I loved storytelling and I loved theatre right from the get-go. My parents were both English teachers, so I was taken often to theatre, to Royal Shakespeare Company and, and so on. Um, and it was only when I went on a summer school at the Royal Ballet School at White Lodge that I realised actually ballet was something that really had a rigour that attracted me. I don't, I'm not sure I thought about it in those words at that point, but looking back, I realised that that discipline and yet still the um, the, the space for storytelling uh, was something that really pulled me in. Um, so it became more and more about ballet. And then when I was 16, I auditioned for the Royal Ballet Upper School and got in. And as I went there, um, there was, I also I did a summer school again where some of the upper school students choreographed on the lower on the summer school students. And I loved this part of the day. It was at the end of the day in the evenings and it was the most inspiring moment. And so when I got to the school, I wanted to choreograph and be part of that program, which you could choose to be or not. And so what is that process or that, what was the love of, the choreographic, the building, the making of work? What was that about? I guess straight away I loved the collaborative aspect of it. Um, I loved that it was non-technical, so I'd be in a pas de rehearsal, pas de class rather, and I'd watch for the mistakes and then see where the possibilities out of mistakes came. Um, you know, what happened if you fell off balance and got caught? And, you know, I'd see all sorts of things in the technical classes where they went wrong. Um, I loved the working with um, design students. So the Royal Ballet School at that time did a collaboration with Central St. Martin's School of Art and Design. So we got to work with young designers, and that was so much fun. And likewise with composers. I was already matched with a couple of composers in my student days. So that... Um, so bringing together of different forms was really exciting to me. And although I, 
I didn't for many years want to be put in a box of a storytelling choreographer. I think even then when I look back, so the the form, trying to bring together ideas into some sort of narrative form was an instinct that I do recognize now. And because, of course, that's such a strong feature of your work, your parents obviously being English t- teachers and your passion for literature, is there a connection there between the storytelling through dance as well? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. So, I mean, as, as a child, I was read too and read a lot of books and loved that. And now I've got two children and I equally love reading to them. Um I'm sure that was a heavy influence. And likewise, my parents taking me to see plays um, and how those stories could be staged was influential. And I love going to theatre now. That's a a big part of the cultural experience for me. Um, But I think it's, for me, looking back, it was always, dance was always um, a way of expressing an idea. It wasn't in any way a sport for me. It wasn't about the physical activity, although that was obviously a a strong part of the learning process. But I was interested in what what each step meant. And even doing um, very technical exams like the RAD syllabus, I actually took that syllabus book to bed when I was about 14 and wrote next to every plie what the particular port de bras meant to me or what that family exercise was supposed to express to me. So I think it was always about what the dance was telling rather than how it was happening. As a medium for, like, expression and storytelling, what is it that dance can do that other art forms or performance art forms might not be able to do? I think all art forms can can do things in different ways, and dance has a particular way to approach emotion and our inner world, um, which perhaps more word-based forms um, do differently. Um, Dance can be very ambiguous, but that ambiguity can also be incredibly precise. We can know, we can recognize an ambiguity, but you can't explain that recognition and and dance sort of can hook into that in a really interesting way. Um, I think dance does relationships really well. Um, it obviously can't, as Balanchine said, explain mother-in-law or you know those sort of technical things. It doesn't talk about money brilliantly, um, legal affairs, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. It doesn't do. <laughs> you know, well, I, I mean, I find myself sometimes, you know, Hedda Gabler, for example. I'd love to do a ballet on Hedda Gabler, but there's certain parts of the story that I haven't quite solved yet in order to do that. Um, but those, those sort of feelings and the connections between people I think dance can really get straight to the heart of. One of the reasons I started really enjoying dance is coming from a theatre background and being able to go to a dance uh, performance and be swept away by the the skill, the technique, the different style of storytelling, whereas in theatre I would get very critical and kind of uh, it would almost be like work. Why have they done that? And that's an interesting decision. Do you find that theatre is those spa- that space for you? Or are there other art forms where you can kind of escape into? Or is dance still that for you? Gosh, I think that really depends for me on, on the creator. So 
there are different sorts of theatre and different sorts of dance. And many times I'll be watching a performance and know that that's not something that I could or would make, but I can admire it very much. Um, and then sometimes the reverse is true. There might be you know, either a director or a choreographer approaching a specific theme or story, and I really disagree <laughs> with, with the way that they have approached it. So both can happen. I think one influential experience for me was being based for quite a long time now in Switzerland, in German-speaking Switzerland. Um, and when I came here, I, I came to direct the Bern Ballet, um, but most of my choreographic experience had been as a British-based choreographer internationally, but it, that was really my anchor. Um, and coming, coming from this storytelling British background, things like um, you know, costume, we, you you absolutely approach costume in a kind of BBC costume drama way. You know, something is. I, for example, made a ballet on Ibsen's ghosts, um, and it was costumes beautifully in the period more or less 1900. Um, and the critics here were really after me for that. I mean, they the German attitude is something called Regie Theater, which means director's theater, is that. The director, and in this case the choreographer, should interpret the text um, rather than put it on stage as written. Um, and so in England, where the writer is the sort of the big boss, and you, as the director or the choreographer, you're trying to find the truth in the writing and put that on stage. In, in Germany, it's really not about that. It's the director's vision. Um, and so you can be you know, quite... Reckless, you know, not reckless, that's a bad choice of word, but you, you can cut the text up, turn it inside out, upside down. You could do whatever you want with the source um, in order to convey your vision. Um, and so I really had to think about that. And I signed a contract for three years at the time. I ended up staying for six in that particular job. Um, and I could have just ignored it and, and said, well, they've brought me here, I'm going to do my thing. Or I could listen to what the criticism was. And I realized that what was important to me was telling stories. And that was still something quite unfashionable and unusual at the time. Um, but what I hadn't really ever considered properly was how to tell those stories. Um, I'd, I'd followed the people that had sort of been in front of me, my, my leaders, my mentors. Um, and so looking around at how other people were doing it in Europe as opposed to Britain was really interesting and approaching costume. I mean, they had a good point. If you put a huge frock over a dancer, however many hours I spent inventing a vocabulary of movement very specific to that character, it was just going to get covered up by a big dress. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really started to question, well, do I need a big dress to give a sense of this period or do we really need to give a sense of this period or do we need to use these props or how how much or how little can we use to suggest a location so that you ignite the audience's imagination straight away you, you make them lean in and work a bit rather than delivering it all on a plate uh, so that was a really interesting experience for me and it was about dance and theater it was just about a different um, theatrical culture and has that changed your practice going forward in all your thinking, or is that something that is very Absolutely. much context-specific? No, no. no, it's totally shaped who I am. I mean, I think that's been really exciting is to see how how 
my journey has shaped me, the work that I make. And I still absolutely feel my British roots and I love going to see British theatre. But, you know, going to see European theatre is equally influential and literature from other places and attitude to music and collage of music. All of those things are absolutely things that um, are now part of me. What are you working on at the moment? (laughs) There's a little portfolio of current projects. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) couple of the next things coming up, I'm, I'll be making uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover for Le Grand Ballet Canadien in Montreal. And I'll be working on a ballet um, based on or inspired by Queen Victoria for Northern Ballet. And I'm making ballet for National, uh, the Ballet National de Cuba, of Cuba. Um, that's going to be more of an abstract piece, but loosely based on um, Prospero from The Tempest and some other characters from The Tempest. Um, what else is going on? Maybe there's a few others that I probably can't talk about yet. There's various various pieces in different stages of development. What's What was your process into choreography as a career or as an idea that this could be something that could be a job? Well, it was pretty early for me. Um, so as I said, I started choreographing when I was at the Royal Ballet School and showed some talent for it, probably more talent for choreography than ballet. Um, so when I left the school, I got a contract with the Zurich Ballet as a dancer. But there were several people at the Royal Opera House in London that wanted to continue supporting me as a choreographer. So I got some early invitations to come back and work on Royal Ballet dancers for small projects, one of which... Um, was seen by Anthony Dowell, who at that point was director of the Royal Ballet. And he then commissioned me to create a piece for the company. Um, And I was very lucky at that moment to be working as a dancer in Luzerne in Switzerland for a British director called Richard Richard Warlock. And he recognized the opportunity. He, He saw that it was a really exciting thing for me to do. And for three years, let me go back to the Royal Ballet once a year to make a piece which is an incredible start for a 21-year-old because you get exposure with a top company straight away. Um, And then when I was 24, I changed um, jobs as a dancer to the Byrne Ballet, and I wasn't able to get that time off to choreograph, and I couldn't couldn't find that outlet um, within that job. So I decided to stop being a full-time dancer and go back to London and freelance, partly dancing as a a project-based dancer, but primarily giving the priority to choreography and and it became a job I mean I, I got commissions internationally and soon became the first associate artist of the Royal Opera House and um, the, the Opera House had at that point been recently renovated and there were two new theatres, um, the Claw and the Limbury which needed to be programmed and Deborah Ball who was a principal dancer at that time started programming and she created a department of the Opera House called ROH2, um, and her job was to animate all spaces of the house except for the main stage. And she had various strategies, but one of which was to create this position of associate artist. And that was a gift because, you know, I had a regular um, a regular gig, you know, and I could work sometimes with Royal Ballet dancers, but at other times they hired freelancers for me. Um, and then in uh, the point, I think five years later, in about 2006, I thought I felt like I wanted my group of people with whom I could work regularly. And so I started to create my own company, the Kathy Marston Project. And we 
managed to get our first tour booked. We got our first Arts Council funding. And literally about a week later, I got this phone call from Switzerland saying, would I interview for the directorship of the Bern Ballet? And, you know, that was too good an opportunity to miss. So I interviewed, got the job and ended up moving back to Switzerland um, to direct the company, which was wonderful because at that, at that point I could choreograph usually a couple of pieces a year, one full evening and one half evening. Um, but I was also able to commission other choreographers, which I loved, um, and, and bring together a group of dancers who I absolutely respected and with whom I could build my ideas and develop my ideas. So that lasted until, gosh, uh, 2013. And then I went freelance again. I'm still based in Switzerland with my family. Um, but I travel pretty much all over the world at the moment. I feel incredibly lucky with some of the commissions that I'm getting in incredibly exciting places. I was just in San Francisco, uh, which was wonderful, premiering a piece called Snowblind for the San Francisco Ballet. Um, and that was based on Edith Wharton's novella, Ethan Frome. Um, and as I said, I'm going to be in Cuba in a month and Canada in two months. So I feel really privileged to be in this position right now. Yeah, how amazing. The importance of those early opportunities is something that um, frequently comes up in conversations that I've had with many choreographers and people, I guess, investing time and um, providing those opportunities at, at those really critical points, I guess. Um, and that yeah. seems to be the case with yourself. I guess the, the remit of companies is to maintain their audiences, so to take a punt and to provide opportunities for people who are unknown can come with a financial risk or a company risk. And I wonder how important is it for these companies to consider and continue providing opportunities for emerging choreographers? Do you know, I think companies have different remits. Um, for example, as director of the Bern Ballet, I realised that I had a relatively small budget, but I did have two stages and a group of 14 very creative dancers and a very nice ballet studio. And I could have them all year. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's opportunity in that. And ironically, what you can do relatively cheaply is commission up-and-coming, emerging choreographers to make new works. What gets really expensive is when you want to um, license the sort of masters, so the Euclidians and the Forsythes and so on. And then you're paying a lot of money for their their fee and also for the person that comes to teach it, um, not to mention the other, the other members of the team. So what I did in Bern was do I almost exclusively uh, commissioned creations and I worked really hard to be on the pulse and try to, to recognize um, the choreographers who were just stepping out. So, for example, in my first season, I'm really proud to say I commissioned both Alexander Eichmann and Hoffe Schechter in the same program. And I think for both of them, it was the first piece that they made outside of their own company, or in Alex's case, um, MDT2 or, or Kohlberg. Um, so, you know, you can... You can take a punt. You just have to realize what sort of company you are. And as a young choreographer, you've got to look for those companies and recognize the opportunities and, and be a little bit strategic about where you try to build relationships. That's amazing that you program both of them in, that, in a know, season. In the same evening, imagine. <laughs> yeah. You got it so right, your finger was right on the pulse. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a few. I commissioned. I mean, it was there was I commissioned Alexander Eichmann, Jose Schechter, Guillaume Botello in a wonderful piece that then toured the world, not with us. I, so I also realised I hadn't got so much money. So if I could um, commission, for example, Guillaume Botello to make a group piece, which he wasn't able to do on his company alias, um, but give him the rights to do it straight away or after a year, then he could tour the world with that piece. So we got a great piece to perform in Bern, and he got a wonderful piece that has headlined festivals all over the world ever since. It was called Sideways Rain. Um, and Nedi Valeski was another name who, who I, I think I really respect as a choreographer, but I brought him to Bern in a very early period for him. There's some um, many similarities, I guess, between the UK and Australia um, and parts of the rest of the world as well around classical dance overwhelmingly programming male choreographers, particularly in those full-length main stage, for want of a better word, works. While women are often running the ballet schools and, you know, uh, high-profile administrators and creating quite amazing, um, I guess, the, the foundations for the company to succeed, what is that gap? Why is there such an overwhelming gap between the participation of men and women within those roles? Do you know, it's really interesting. I just listed off some of the names of people that I commissioned as director in Bern, and I didn't list any of the women. And that worries me, that the names that sprang to mind straight away were the men. I'd like to also include Didi Veldman, who I commissioned to create a full evening ballet of Momo, and Andrea Miller, who's director of Gallen. Um, we brought her to Bern twice to do new works. Uh, Carol Armitage, um, and several others. So it's it's tricky. I think... Men tend to be on the tip of the tongue at the moment, and I think that's beginning to change. But I do feel when programmers, when directors are, are sort of, you know, you need to find the choreographer, it's the people that, that are in your consciousness at that moment. And that might be because, well, it's one of those things, the more work you make, the more work you get. If you've been seen at a premiere party last week, you're going to be in someone's mind. If you've had great critics for a piece that you've made on one side of the world, it's likely that people on the other side of the world are going to think, oh, that must have been good. I wonder what he's like. It's it's a worry that it's always men. Can you ask me the question again? Because I've now forgotten where it came from. Yeah, I I guess why there is that overwhelming gap um, in the programming numbers in many of these let's say, classical dance companies. I mean, it's obviously not all, but when you look at um, many of the works that are being commissioned or that are being um, reprogrammed, men kind of dominate. Yeah. I think there are lots of reasons, and I'm asked this question often. Um, I think there is something to be said for going back to training and trying to work out when sort of 18, 19-year-olds are in that professional training environment, why is it that the the boys or the young men um, seem to feel in their element when they are different and yet the young women stand in line? And obviously there's got, you know, young women are taught to stand in line in a ballet class because that's what they're going to be asked to do in many of the big classical ballets. Um, but I think we need to encourage st- 
students at that point to become individual artists as much as group members um, and look at that period in a dancer's life or career and, and really try to work out how can we ignite their, their creativity um, as much as their team building skills or their, their ability to fit in to a group, which is what I think young women often feel they need to do. Um, and then you go into the companies, and of course, I think it is it is very competitive for female ballet dancers. If they have an ambition to become a soloist or principal dancer, stepping out of of that, stepping off the ladder for a moment and choreographing, going off for a month or two months to choreograph, you're, you're out of that picture of the cast list. You know, you're out of the director's head when they're trying to think, oh, who should do that next solo or so on or so on. So. It's, it's really hard. I think directors perhaps could do more to encourage female dancers within their company to create and make that okay, make it possible for them to go somewhere else and choreograph, because often it's also quite difficult to choreograph on your colleagues. That can be tricky. can be wonderful, but also tricky. Um, and then, of course, there comes that moment of motherhood, and that's a really everyone deals with it in a different way. And I've now got two little kids, um, and... I am continuing to have a career throughout, but I continued all along. Um, but that's a choice that has to be made, and some people might not want to make that choice. And even if you do want to keep your career going and have young children, you have to somehow find a way to get the support around you. And as it happened for me, because I've been choreographing for quite a long time when I came to have children, I was able to get fees for each piece that were, if not more, like at least as much as I would be needing to pay for the childcare and hopefully more. Um, but, you know, that's not always the case. If you're starting to choreograph and you're, let's say, 35 and you want to have children at the same time, that's really quite tough. Um, so I think there could be more support and infrastructure put in place to find ways for women to become mothers and to develop their choreographic careers at the same time. Um, and beyond that, I can't say. I'm sure there are going to be more challenges. <laughs> yeah. But those are the ones that I, I can identify through experience at the moment. One of the things that's come up in many of the interviews that I've done is also about role models. And when you look around at opportunities or career sustainability and you're not seeing women in these high-profile um, positions to the same level as men, um, you still don't even see it as an option or as a possibility or something to pursue. Um, I guess that could be. I guess that could be a factor, um, perhaps a subconscious factor. I don't think that ever occurred to me because choreography was something I was driven to do. It wasn't something I thought, "Oh, what shall I do after dancing? Should I become a choreographer?" It was something that I was always doing and couldn't not do. Um, so I don't think I ever considered whether it was okay but maybe that's why I'm doing it and there aren't very many women doing it I mean maybe that is one of the reasons are there particular things that have kind of helped you along your career or I mean I think that the few people that I've mentioned who gave me early opportunities Deborah Ball in making me associate artist at the Opera House Richard Warlock in being a director of a company in which I was dancing but recognizing that he could find a way to let me off for a month and go and choreograph each year. Um, so people just thinking a little bit outside the box and with generosity, I think, really has made a difference. 
And to be honest, I, Deborah, not only making me a associate artist, she also introduced me to um, a wonderful man who is now the chairman of my board of the Kathy Marston Project and a very dear long-term friend. And he supported my position um, through, in a philanthropical way at the Opera House. Um, but when I left the Opera House, continued to support me, helped me build my company and has offered me advice as a mentor and as a friend for many, many years now. And just those introductions are hugely valuable. I can't tell you how valuable that has been. Um, not only financially, although of course he has supported some of my work over the years, but also in terms of having someone who you absolutely know is loyal to you and on your side and who you can turn to for advice at any time. Um, and those you don't have those people necessarily as a young dancer. You need introducing to those people. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. If you were to, you know, speak to or mentor an emerging female choreographer or somebody that was perhaps looking at choreography as an option or a possibility, what advice would you give or what things would you get them to consider or think about? Gosh, that's hard. <laughs> It's, it's very much um, related to the individual person. I guess one of the things that I've noticed in recent years is that I have come to accept and love the box that I've been put in as a choreographer. So for, for some years, I really wanted to be, um, you know, to choreograph narrative work, but also to choreograph abstract work and on ballet companies, but also contemporary companies. And that's pretty hard, I realize, as a director, because you might like someone's piece, but you don't really know what they're going to make when you commission them. I mean, my first piece that I created for Northern Ballet, they were absolutely a narrative ballet company. I mean, that's what they're known for. And I went and made my most abstract work ever. <laughs> I don't know why. It was a really good abstract work, actually. I was proud of it, but I don't know why I made it there and then. Um, and I think since... And I don't think you can put this on, but I have come to realize that what I love doing is storytelling. And with that clarity has come a whole lot more work <laughs> because I think people realize what I do. It's a little niche that I am, I want to say perfecting. That sounds like I'm getting towards it. I don't think there is a perfect version of it, but um I'm just investigating. I'm digging down into it each time I, I make a new work. And I think that particular strand, uh, knowing that, that I create in that particular strand, has meant that people feel um, braver about commissioning me to make larger works, which is what I want to do. So knowing yourself is really important. And then once you know yourself, look around and find the right matches um, to be... Be strategic. I've used that word again, but I think it's important to be intelligent. Also, as a dancer, you know, as a, as a director in Bern, I I couldn't stand it when you get people writing to you um, wanting to audition, and they obviously had no idea what the company's repertoire was. <laughs> um, and even if they felt like they should let you know what they they loved your work, they could sometimes write, "I love your work, and I really want to audition for the Bern Ballet," um, and then. CC that email into 10 other companies uh, um, and that would just really irritate me and I think I think the same that, that advice would apply to all 
all sort of work. Like know what you want to do and look at where the best place to do that is and then find a way towards that place. Yeah, I think that's very good advice. Um, the template email is incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah. I had somebody send me one to interview him about a children's book uh, about a boxing mouse or something. I was like, hey, do you even know what the podcast is about? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You, uh, I think the other thing, sorry, one, one more piece of advice is just to keep putting yourself out there and writing to people and going to meet people. Going to meet people is almost always more effective if you can manage it. Um, but it's so it's so disheartening sometimes when you will write 50 letters and you get one reply. <laughs> but you just have to keep doing it, and it's okay. And I really have. Yeah. That's one of the things that's actually come up in the research is the confidence and women feeling not necessarily as confident as the men in kind of keeping to pursue those opportunities or um, dealing with knockbacks and things like that and how how to I guess develop that resilience and keep kind of knocking mm, on the doors I mean I, I really have written and approached hundreds of people over 25 years um, and obviously what I have achieved is a fraction of those approaches so you really do have to make many put a lot out there in order to to make a few hits where do you get your motivation from or resilience to just keep going? Like, are there times where you just want to give up or it seems too hard? Do you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had that. Um, and I don't know where I get that resilience from. I think that might be natural because it's it's um, not learnt particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it would be hard if I hadn't gotten anything back. Obviously, I've, you know, well, no, okay, that's not true. There's resilience there because it's natural, but it's also, um, I've received a lot of encouragement from people as well. So for every, you know, 10 people you write to, okay, you might only get one reply or less, but that one reply can really matter and sometimes make a huge difference. So... The resilience comes from myself, but also from the support I have had around me. Yeah, great. We mentioned before that dance education um, kind of seems to be a place where the gender difference starts to occur. Are there things that needs to be thought about or done within this space to better, better equip young women to think outside the box or have opportunities and that kind of thing? I think having this conversation is really important and I'm pretty sure that um, the situation within dance education now must be very different than, than when I was at the Royal Ballet School. Um, I have one story that I've told a few times to various people but it, it makes me laugh each time. Like the first uh, parents' evening or parents' day um, I was at the Royal Ballet School, age 16, and my parents came up, and, you know, it was a new world for them. But they work in education, they're teachers. So they went to speak to my ballet teacher, and she said, oh, well, the problem with Cathy is that she thinks for herself. <laughs> and, I mean, they were horrified. Um, and it took me 
you know, several hours of just talking them through it, calming them down to persuade them not to pull me out of the school. But I think I do understand what that teacher meant. You know, sometimes in dance education, you need to go with what the teacher's saying and just try it. And that's the same in making a choreography. If every dancer questioned every step that I asked them to do before they'd tried it, it would be really, really tough. Um, at the same time, I do really want to work with dancers who do question it. I just want them to know when and how to question it. <laughs> um, and that's what I think needs to be taught. So perhaps emotional intelligence is something that could be better fostered in schools um, amongst the students as well as the staff, really. Learning how to nurture individuals and not, um, not just follow a line, which is sort of house style or school style. There needs to be dancers or individuals, and there may be a certain technique or aesthetic that's a house style, but in terms of people, you can't just say, well, she's not like this, it's not going to work for her. That's simply not true. Um, I was really lucky at the Royal Ballet School to have two wonderful teachers of choreography, and sadly they've both passed, but uh, David Drew and Norman Morris were amazing to me and really mentored me through that two-year period of time um, in a way that I can't imagine how I got through it without their encouragement. It's come up quite a few times in regards to um, audiences in a lot of the interviews I've done and the role that audiences have actually in... Um, their buying power or uh, agitating for change or for a more diverse programming or what, whatever it might be. Do you think that audiences are blind or unaware of kind of gender equality in dance or is it something that is on people's radar? Because it seems to be something that some people are yeah, talking about changing. but not everyone. No, it's not everyone and I, I don't think it will ever be everyone because some people really obstinately think that there should be no um, no eye to equality. Like an artist is an artist no matter what the, the gender. And, and I can understand that. You know, the work is the work at the end of the day. However, I do think we need to work harder to make sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to make that work. And for some reason, even though we might not be deliberately favoring male men and giving the men more opportunities, I think that just has been the case in the past. But it is changing. Um, and that the, the conversation is being had is really, really important. Thanks for listening. I encourage you to explore the episode notes at delvingintodance.com where you'll also find the self-funded report, Turning Points, Gender Equality in Australian Dance. We all have a role to play. Join the conversation and spread the word. You can find Delving Into Dance on Twitter, on iTunes and on Facebook. Lastly, Delving Into Dance relies on the support of you, the listener. Contribute now on the website. These contributions will help fund future research and episodes. Delving Into Dance also acknowledges the support of the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. Until next time, take care.